Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Ever wonder what psychologists talk about over coffee? I'm Debbie Sorensen, a clinical psychologist in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, where I specialize in rehab and health psychology and acceptance and commitment therapy. And I'm Diana Hill, a clinical psychologist in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California, where I specialize in mindfulness and values-based approaches to therapy. In this podcast, we bring psychology research into practice by discussing topics from psychology with experts in the field and with each other. You'll get a glimpse into the books we read, the research we think is interesting, and the ideas from psychology that we use to thrive in our own lives. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Hi, Diana. Hi, Debbie. Well, we're going to start with, I believe, a check-in from you about what's happening in Santa Barbara, which we'll tie into our episode today. Um, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about what's been going on? Well, uh, I know about as much as what probably people have seen in the news in terms of the Montecito area and the mudslides. And I think what's going on is that as a community, we're just really having a hard time, pretty devastated by people that have been lost and also just the, the massive uh, unexpected event after a period of time of, of really suffering from uh, smoke and fires. So my heart really goes out to our community. I know, Debbie, you and I came up, came up with this idea of doing uh, this podcast just really on the fly uh, two days ago. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and we thought that this would be an episode really that goes out to the community of Santa Barbara. And if you are listening and think it might be helpful to share with somebody in Santa Barbara uh, that might be helpful for them. We hope that you do pass it along and really for anyone that's experienced trauma. So today we want to talk about uh, post-traumatic growth and um, opportunity that can come from trauma. So this will be something that you could also pass along to family or friends that you think might be helpful for them as well. Yeah, and, and in addition to exploring this research, um, which is really, really interesting stuff, we're going to end the episode with some basically some suggestions and some practices that people might find helpful, both in and out of Santa Barbara, who have been through a difficult time. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I, I do on a, a weekly basis uh, is, or actually every other week, is I teach yoga at my children's schools. And so, this, <laughs> so sweet. It's so sweet. It's adorable. And this this past week, uh, we did a very special yoga class for our, our community. And the yoga class was uh, one that was off of the idea of no med, no lotus. So I don't know if you've heard that term before, Debbie. Yeah, I had, I had a yoga teacher who used to end each class by saying, like a lotus flower in muddy water. Beautiful. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a nice metaphor. And the, and the concept of the lotus is one that it's an incredibly beautiful flower that grows from mud. And it can be sort of an inspirational idea of when we're really in the muck of things, uh, there can be some shift and change that uh, is positive for us in, in the healing a trauma of the scale that we faced in Santa Barbara and any, you know, traumas that people experience produce 
normally produce and naturally produce physiological and psychological responses. And some of those may be grief, anger, shock, guilt. Uh, I've heard that a lot in my practice this week of people feeling mm-hmm. guilty about going about their lives while there are people that are still missing. And, uh, and how, do you, how do you navigate that? And at the same time, we, we need people to go about their lives because we need the city of Santa Barbara to continue. And mm-hmm. there's also, uh, so that's a normal experience. When you experience a trauma, it really shakes and threatens your understanding of the world. And it also can illuminate the fragility and preciousness of human life. It also has the opportunity for growth. So there's a book called Wired to Create, and in that book, Kaufman and Gregory write that after a trauma, adverse events force us to re-examine our beliefs and priorities. They can help us break out of habitual ways of thinking and thereby boost creativity. It's like when everything crumbles down, you have an opportunity to, to rebuild something new. And some of your petty concerns that felt so important like during the time when we were evacuated for the fires, all the events of the holiday season were just sort of postponed. We didn't do holiday parties. I didn't do holiday Christmas cards. Didn't do a whole lot of holiday shopping. It no longer seemed actually important. What seemed important yeah. was just being with my family and that and that our house was okay and that my friends were safe. So petty concerns kind of, not that those things are petty, but you get really clear really fast what matters. Yeah, Yeah, it can just get you out of the kind of routine, like concerns about daily life and into this grander perspective on things. Exactly. Yeah. So for the past 10 decades, mainstream psychology has really focused on post-traumatic stress and post-traumatic stress disorder. And a lot of us know about that as a response to trauma. But more recently, there's been a shift towards a non-medical and positive psychological view of mental health. And researchers have found that some trauma survivors, somewhere between 30 and 70%, report post-traumatic growth, which is positive transformations that result from suffering. I I think that's really true. Like I, I've done a lot of work within uh, with veterans, and I think that the almost all the time what I hear about is the medical like symptom reduction and the distress that follows. And it's not that common, maybe getting to be more so though, for people to focus on the growth end, Mm -hmm. which I think is a major, you know, something that people should not be overlooking when they're working with trauma. Exactly. Yeah. So there's two research, two researchers, researchers out, uh, out of UNC Tedichi and Calhoun, who coined this term post-traumatic growth, and they've done a a lot of um, studies in the area. And what they found is that there's five components of post-traumatic growth. And you can even think about for yourself, maybe thinking about a time in your life when you've experienced uh, a major stressor in your life and whether some of these things showed up for you. So the first component is a deeper and more meaningful social connection. The second component is openness to possibilities that were not present before. The third is new awareness of personal strengths. The fourth is spiritual connection. And the fifth is a sense of purpose and appreciation for life. Debbie, can you relate to, you know, I I know that you've in your own life have probably experienced some significant stressors. Can you relate to having some of those show up for you? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think it does create this kind of 
sense of reflection and appreciation. Anytime that I've been through some difficulty in my life, as hard as it is, you sort of come out the other side um, with some new ways of thinking. Yeah. How about you, Diana? Yeah. I mean, I think in particular during these events, you know, my, my four-year-old has the habit of waking up at the crack of dawn and has always had that habit seven days a week. (laughs) And on Sunday morning when he woke up and I heard him down the hall pushing his little, uh, shopping cart and he pushed it into my my room like 5 55 in the morning and started unloading books and <laughs> and all sorts of things onto my bed and then crawled into my bed and I could smell his little morning breath and his little cute Santa Claus pajamas and he wanted me to read a story to him and in that moment in time for whatever reason I was I've been deeply impacted by the loss of children and just the preciousness of being able to have my own child with me. And I know that there were there, there are still children that are missing and children that have died. That's a deep appreciation for life that I might have oh. just usually been annoyed at him coming so early in the morning. That's the difference, I think, that a significant event like this can have in terms of focusing on what's important. You know, I remember in the aftermath of the Sandy Hook um you know, event a few years back that everyone was just, I feel like this, the whole country was just like hugging onto their children mm-hmm. of every age, just thinking how precious each moment is. It really, it does give you this gratitude that we sometimes just miss. We miss. Yeah. Yeah. So it's also not without psychological stress that this transformation occurs. And I think what was interesting when I was reading through some of the studies is that highly resilient people actually may experience less post-traumatic growth than less resilient people. Mm -hmm. And having two effective coping strategies may actually prevent you from experiencing the magnitude of the pain that you need to make the seismic shifts. So we need to allow space to be in the mud for a while and in order for the lotus to grow. So I don't want to do like a bypass straight to the lotus here. <laughs> like it's right. important that we sit in the mud of it and we feel it in our bodies. And some of the, I led a uh, workshop yesterday with a Buddhist psychologist in Santa Barbara and it was free to the community, whoever wanted to come. And we opened to talking, some of the people came in and talked about their experiences and some of the words they used in their experience were things like, I don't have a clear sense of understanding of the meaning of this right now. I am still in confusion and shock and my heart is so heavy. Or some people were talking about how they were reverting back to old patterns of behaviors that are unhelpful for them, like old addictions and struggles that they've had. Some people were talking about how a trauma, this trauma can activate old traumas and that feeling of being alone and helpless. And those are all experiences of the mud and the muck of it. And we need to allow space for that to be there as well. Yeah, I think it's really important that um, to note that, that post-traumatic growth and psychological distress can co-occur also. Like, I think we think of it as one or the other. You know, either you're distressed or you show growth. But in fact, they aren't exclusive of one another. And I think exactly what you said is right, that people who are sort of shaken up or who have some degree of that stress, that kind of emotional stress, are often the ones who have the most 
growth. And I read a book, um, What Doesn't Kill Us, The New Psychology of Post-Traumatic Growth by Stephen Joseph. And he writes that it's really in that struggle to make sense of the traumatic event that the growth can take hold. So if you don't have that struggle, the growth doesn't occur. Exactly. Um, and he, I love this metaphor he gives. Um, he calls it the theory of the shattered vase. And if you imagine this beautiful colored vase and you drop it and it shatters, you know, there are a couple different things you could do. One would be to pick up the pieces and try to put it back the way it was before using tape and glue and whatever. Um, and But it will never really be the same. Um, so, you know, that's one option. Another one would be to, you know, throw the, all the shards into the trash can and just, you know, kind of forget the whole thing and give up. But a third option is to build something new, like a colorful mosaic out of the shards. And instead of trying to make it the same as it was, um, accept the breakage and build something new and build yourself anew mm -hmm. after a difficulty. I just love that metaphor. That's really beautiful. That actually makes me think of this. I had this beautiful Italian pot that my son ran his bike into and <laughs> shattered. <laughs> and so then what we did is we, we created a, a mosaic of our numbers of our house, like a number sign on a rock out of, out, oh. of the, the, out of that. And it's even more, I like actually even love that more than I loved the, the vase and the, you know, the right. pot that he broke. So yeah. that there, there are, that's, that's the creativity of being able to take the experience and the change and make it into something different. I w was really uh, shocked by some research on prisoner of wars, uh, which veterans that found that there was avi aviators that were shot down, imprisoned and tortured during the Vietnam War. Of them, 61% of the sample tested reported psychological benefits from the experience. And they said the things that they experienced were things like increased self-confidence and a sense of what is important in life. And what was surprising is that the more severely the veterans were tortured, the more likely they were to report the post-traumatic growth. So just like you were saying, it's not without psychological distress. And in fact, yeah. the psychological distress may be the, the nutrients of the mud that allow the growth to occur. Right. There's another... No. Yeah. No mud, no lotus. No mud, no lotus. Exactly. There's another uh, uh, experience that we can have, which is when you've gone through a traumatic event, you it can increase your psychological preparedness. So it actually can make you more resilient. So whereas resilience doesn't necessarily make you have more growth, going through a psychological um, event can, can and having post-traumatic growth, a result of that is becoming more resilient and more prepared for uh, sort of to withstand future shocks. And I, you know, in thinking about the community of Santa Barbara, we spent a number of time, a large, long time in the fires. And the results of being in that situation of chronic stress with a fire actually built a, some strength in our community. Neighbors were talking to neighbors, checking in on people that we haven't called or checked in on in a long time. I had friends contact me that I hadn't heard from uh, for a long time. There was also a strengthening of our community systems, like our first responders, uh, our um, the, the coordination between our mental health and other resources. And all of that actually prepared us for the mudslides. And, you know, it's I think that's what's also uh, a benefit is that when we go through a traumatic event, we grow new systems of operating because of the traumatic event. Part of our healing is a strengthening of, of, of systems. 
And I think that people have experienced multiple traumas in their lives. They probably can relate to that, that sense of, oh my gosh, I, I know that I've been through something hard before and therefore I can draw upon some of the strengths that I developed during that time. Yeah, it makes people almost more adaptable. Going through difficulty makes it so that you know you can weather many storms in life and changes, unexpected ones. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You certainly can see that for people when they've had one, two, or three children. By the time they're <laughs> on their third child, it's like no biggie, right? In yeah. terms of some of the, like sweating the small stuff because they've been right. through it. They know like, oh yeah, just let them cry. They'll figure their way to fall asleep. Right. Uh, the so things that overwhelmed you at first. The things like, okay, yeah, I got this. You got this right. now. And yeah. so we can, we can think about that as well when we're going through a pretty significant stressor that this is strengthening us for, for future stressors. No one is immune. Uh, and I, you know, I often think about Kelly Wilson's book that he wrote. Uh, he, it's called Things Might Go Terribly Horribly Wrong. And I, when he was in our workshop, he said he wished that he had renamed it to Things Will Go Terribly Horribly yeah. Wrong. <laughs> At some point. At some yeah. point, they will. And yeah. so uh, these are all opportunities. Another, I think, uh, important part of thinking about psychological uh, trauma and stress is that oftentimes we, we have this really negative connotation and fear about stress. And this is something that's uh, been really promoted more recently in mainstream news and media, which is stress will kill you. And this whole sort of uh, focus on cortisol and how it's really not good for our systems, our immune systems. And there's actually uh, some pretty strong research out there that it's not stress that is the problem. It's actually our beliefs about stress and how we think about stress influences its impact on us. And so Kelly McGonigal, who has written a couple of books, she wrote a book called The Upside of Stress. She's a Stanford uh, professor. And in that book, she goes through and talks about the latest science demonstrating that how we think about stress significantly influ influences its impact, or its physical impact on us. So having a view that stress is bad for your health and then using avoidance strategies to manage stressors, so things like numbing out or suppressing emotions or, you know, avoiding through substances, having that view predicts negative health impacts. But in contrast, if you think about stress as an opportunity for growth and you cope with stress more proactively, like managing problems that can be solved, finding meaning, developing a social network or developing acceptance, you can really transform stress into a stimuli, stimulus that makes us stronger, smarter, more successful, more compassionate, and more courageous. How you think about it matters, and this is the idea behind mindset. So our expectations and our mindset can actually influence our outcomes. One thing uh, that Katie McGonigal talks about is some research uh, out of Stanford as well, where they had people undergo some very sort of stressful event, which was uh, doing sort of a mock job interview where they're given critical feedback. And they measured their saliva levels of two hormones that are, are released during stress, cortisol and DHEA. So cortisol is the one that we know a lot about, and we know that it prepares our bodies for stress by, you know, suppressing our immune systems, um, decreasing our digestion, things like that. 
DHEA is another hormone that actually has some beneficial effects to it as well. It actually has some um, it benefits to your memory, to your ability to learn, and it helps your brain grow. What they found in was sort of important is that your ratio of DHEA to cortisol is a predictor of how well you'll, you will physically respond to the stress, the stress, and you want to have higher levels of DHEA. Now, prior to this stressor of the, of the job interview, they told people ahead of time, randomly, either you are going into this stressful situation and it's going to be debilitating. The level, high levels of stress are debilitating to you. Or they told you, high levels of stress prepare your body for action and may actually enhance your response. So they were told these two different outcomes. Mm -hmm. When they measured their saliva levels of DHA and cortisol afterwards, they found that the people that were told that stress is debilitating had lower DHA and, and that compared to the, the people that were told that stress is a challenge and maybe enhance their response. So actually, their mindset going on, their beliefs about the stress impact on them impacted their own physiology which is fascinating. Oh, to me. So interesting. Yeah. Fascinating. It's how well, you think it's about real, it. I think it's so helpful to think of it that way because I've had many clients who came in to see me who said, well, I'm trying to reduce stress in my life. I'm trying, which I understand if you're under chronic stress, that doesn't feel great. But the answer sometimes people think is to try to get rid of all stressors. But in order to do that, you have to really disengage from important areas of your life. And that's not necessarily a good thing to do. Right. And right. We Instead have to, of you kind of think of the benefits of stress in this way, it can kind of sh turn it on its head a little bit. And I've been practicing a little bit with this because uh -huh. I think I, you know, just with my own practice and I had would gave a talk and a, a presentation this week. And then we had this, we decided to push the podcast up and all of a sudden I started noticing that stress, you know, the stress response. And uh -huh. what I, what I practice with is, well, I am so, I'm glad that I'm having the stress response because it's going to, energize me and give me more <laughs> focus to get through this time period when there is just more going on. And mm -hmm. just in doing that, and then also connecting it to a sense of meaning for myself, just in doing that alone shifted my perspective. Right. So we have to think about how, how we're talking about our stress. Are we going through our day saying, this is so stressful, or I can't handle it? Or can we talk about our can we talk about the stress in a different way? Such as this is a time of a lot of intensity going on. It's I'm going to have more energy. I'm going to be more focused. I'm going to you know be more prepared for these challenging events. Yep. Yep. And you know I think it's not about taking a Pollyanna approach where everything is all great or avoidance approach to stress, but rather what the research has shown is that. Our ability to tolerate uncertainty and just sort of the practice of mindfulness of creating enough space for discomfort, stress, adversity, pain is what is most predictive of a positive stress response. And that's over and above optimism. So it's not that you mm -hmm. go in with an optimistic, everything's going to be fine. We will rebuild. Yeah. And it's all going to be fine really soon. It's not going to be fine really soon. There's going to be a whole you know, slew of painful things that will happen and that we have to work hard at. And in, there's also going to be moments of reprieve and peace and, and magical things that will also happen. So right. being present uh, in this moment and, and being al allowing for uncertainty, which is really challenging for humans to do. 
You know, I'm glad you say that, too, because I don't want the message of this episode to be like, oh, it's great. Trauma's wonderful. That's not it. It's horrible. And there's room for other ways to think about it. So a big component of post-traumatic growth is uh, is meaning and the meaning that can surface out of a result of going through something really hard. And when they've studied, um, there's something called the blue zones, which I've gotten more interested in now. And they have the blue zones of health and also the blue zones of happiness. But the blue zones were... Uh, created when some researchers were studying who who in the world lives the longest. And they found, uh, and actually how they defined it as blue zones is when they were, when they were um, researching these areas, they took a blue Sharpie and were just outlining them on the map. And so they called them the blue zones. Right. But there's areas of our world where people live significantly longer in these small communities. Some of them include the Okinawans of Japan, the Nakoa region of Costa Rica, the Italian island of Sardinia, Greek island of Icartia, oh, Icaria, and then Loma Linda, California. Right. <laughs> Which is so odd. Uh, yeah. Actually, it's the Seventh-day Adventist in Loma Linda, California. And the researchers have come up with nine different uh, components that contribute to this living a long life. And one of those is a sense of purpose and meaning. In Japan, the Okinawans call it Ikaigai, and in Costa Rica, they call it Plan de Vida. And both of these translate to why I wake up in the morning. There's a reason why you, you're waking up. And having a sense of purpose has been shown through this research is, is equivalent of increasing your life expectancy by up to seven years. So having a meaningful life is different than a happy life. And psychologists sort of distinguish these two terms, a happy life being hedonic well-being. And that's the, the sort of search for more things that will make you happy. The kitchen remodel mm -hmm. or the, you know, new car or the new job. Which, the pleasure. Yeah, pleasure. it's like some sort of pleasure yeah. type happiness. And our happiness which is, set point tends to just go back to its same place, you know, after a period of time of pursuing this hedonic well-being. Yeah, it's short-lived usually. Yeah. Yeah. There's another type of well-being, with, which is eudaimonic well-being. And eudaimonic well-being is produced from having a sense of purpose and meaning. It's a deeper, more durable state. And it's been associated with things like better sleep, fewer strokes and heart attacks, lower risk for dementia, premature death. What's kind of interesting about eudonomic well-being is that a meaningful life, if you have this meaningful life, it doesn't necessarily mean that you are without distress, like we were also we were talking about before. A meaningful life is associated with higher levels of anxiety, worry, and stress. There's been some research on parents and Parents are um, shown to have a higher sense of meaning, but they're also found to be slightly less happy. And they're less happy right. than, than when, while interacting with their children than when they're exercising or watching television, which is so sad. <laughs> just a break. But um, there are times, let's face it, when it's just really not what you want to be doing. Yes, exactly. But but you do it because it's meaningful. And that's like, my, you know, that's like my son climbing into my bed yeah. at 5 a.m. It's just... There's meaning there, even though it's painful. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Right. It, there's another term, and this term was mentioned in Emily Estefani's book, uh, The Power of Meaning. 
it's called the Ikea effect. And I love this term. It's the idea that when you put together sort of Ikea furniture, that cheap front, cheap uh, Swedish furniture, you uh-huh. feel <laughs> you feel more appreciation for it than, you know, than not put it together. So it's like you spend this hardship and time of working on this thing and then you want to put that furniture in, you know, someplace where you're going to see it off and you feel like a sense of, ah, I did that, <laughs> you know, pride. <Right. laughs> yeah. So it's the Ikea effect. Hardship and struggle produces meaning. In her book, The Power of Meaning, Emily Estefani-Smith, she writes about three aspects, or sorry, yeah, four aspects to meaning. And the first one is to have a sense of purpose. And I think as ACT therapists, we think of purpose as being linked to our values. What what matters to you? And are you acting in alignment with the type of person that you want to be? Uh, When I was, you know, again, thinking about the first responders or other people in our community that are showing up, they're, they're demonstrating their, whether they're religious leaders or people that are offering to take in cats, you know, everyone's purpose is a little bit different, right? And it's more of a, a what matters to you. The second com- component to meeting is belonging. And uh, it's important that you know, I think in particular when you're going through a stressor that you go, you seek out, it's really critical that you seek out groups and you find people to be with. There was a a vigil last night in Santa Barbara where thousands of people all came together with candles and we, and people spoke from different religious, um, different religious leaders in the community as well as in the government came and spoke to us. And it was pretty moving just to be all in one place and to sing together and hold a candle together. That's a deep sense of of belonging. And it shifted. I think it probably shifted most people's night of having been there. Mm -hmm. But it's also important to have uh, sort of high quality connections and to have these even short term, meaningful, high quality connections throughout our day. They can be even just your interactions with the person that you buy coffee from or for me, when um, during the fires, I go and get my chicken feed from this little shop called Island Seed and Feed out in Galita. And for years, I've been going there and talking to the owner and talking to the chicken lady there. And she knows everything about chickens. And we, <laughs> <laughs> we uh, when we had evacuated, we kind of had gone through all of our neighbors and uh, and our family members to be able to feed our chickens. And we were kind of stuck because there was our house, we, no one could access it and we were very far away. And I was worried about coming home to all these dead chickens. And so I thought about, oh, the people at Island Seed and Feed. And I gave them a call and they came out all the way and they went past, past the police lines to come feed our chickens. That, oh, was so sweet. Wow. And, and yeah. that was built, that was built on small, high quality connection over time. Yep. We need those as as a, as a um, as humans to survive. We yeah. need to be able to lean on each other that way and be able to see each other in that way. Yeah, social connection is crucial for humans, <laughs> and that also links back to the Okinawans who live those long lives and are also so happy. They <laughs> they have a, a group called. It made me think of our little group, Debbie. But they have a group called Moais. And what Moais are is a group of five friends 
who are five friends for life, and they commit to each other to be support financially, emotionally, and social and social assistance for life, no matter what. And wouldn't that wow. be, yeah, isn't that nice to think of? You have yeah. it's not just your family; it's your group of friends. That that may also lead to their their long lives. Mm-hmm. The third component of a uh, sense of meaning is storytelling. And I think that oftentimes when you're, when I'm working with people that have been through a trauma and they're coming to my office, that's, I mean, that's sort of the foundation of the first part of trauma work is having people tell the story, whether that's an exposure work or other types of, of therapy, that it's really important to be able, you know, as humans, we, we need to create a narrative and share, and share that narrative with others. It's very important in the healing process. What about your experience with veterans? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that sometimes just being able to have someone they can share a story with a piece of their history, if they've never been able to talk about that before can be really healing. And then also forming a new narrative of their life now and where they're headed um, can help shift and open up new ways of thinking. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So yeah. And then the fourth component is is transcendence. And you know, the, the, the word transcend comes from the word to climb, to climb to a higher place. And I think that part of uh, a sense of meaning is also losing sense of self to some degree into a greater whatever it is that, that you have a higher reality. Uh, some people find this through spirituality. Other people find it through nature. Some people find it through just love and, and being with people. So those are the four, and I really highly recommend that book, The Power of Meeting by Emily Estefani Smith. Yeah, I started, I started reading it at your suggestion and a couple episodes back. It's really good, and I've already told several of my clients about it, actually. And <laughs> the irony very is, powerful book. I was reading that during the fires, and then it's been like such a resource for me yeah. since then. So it's really, yeah, it's really perfect. Yeah, wonderful. So... To live a meaningful life, you must live a psychologically flexible life. Debbie, do you want to speak a little bit to what psychologically flexible, psychological flexibility is? Yeah, I mean, this is a term we are both familiar with um, because of acceptance and commitment therapy, which we both use in our practice. Um, and it's basically that whatever comes up internally, whether it's emotions, thoughts, memories, sensations, that you're able to continue to, you know, move in the direction of your values, even when you're faced with difficulty and to to be able to change what's not working and move forward in new ways and, and, you know, be more flexible in general. And so I think that you can see that in post-traumatic growth, that even when you're going through a difficult time, when there's all this adversity in your life and you're afraid and uncertain about what's going to happen, all that may arise and you can still continue to, to be the person that you want to be and to live a, a values-driven life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, values can show up in a number of different domains. So you have, what, what type of person do you want to be as uh, a friend? Or what type of person do you want to be in your career? What type of person do you want to be in your romantic relationship? And one of the, the things about values is that it's very, uh, it's really yours to be decided, much like a favorite color where Debbie, your favorite color may be purple and mine may be blue and blue is no better 
than purple. Right. So mm-hmm. we start to, you know, ask those questions when I think in, in particular, when you've gone through a trauma, it gets more clear what's important to you. <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, you can think about values as sort of being like a compass and you can, you can point north at any point in time and take a step in the direction of north. Likewise, you can stay, take a step in the direction of your values at any point in time. And I think it's important when you're going through and recovering from significant stressors that that's actually what starts to motivate you and actually a huge, um, I think, preventative uh, measure against depression is to get yourself moving. And then mm-hmm. you get yourself moving get yourself moving north and north is whatever is of value to you. So if you love to cook and it's, and you appreciate food, then you get yourself cooking for somebody. But I think that, um, there is, there's no sort of goal necessarily. Goals are things that come up along the way as you move in the direction of value. So example on a map, a goal may be a mountain that you need to climb to get, keep on moving north, but values, you never get there. So that's, um, I think, getting clear on those and then making some concrete movies, movements could be very helpful. Mm-hmm. Sort of actively cope by continuing to move toward your values yes. always. Exactly. You never get to that end point. So Debbie, you wanted to talk about some tips that uh, people could have for responding to trauma and stress. Yeah, so we hope these will be some helpful suggestions for people um, who have been through some difficulty, whether it's recently or, you know, a while ago. Um, So we kind of boiled down what we've been reading into a few different, I guess, sort of strategies or suggestions. So the first one um, important thing is to give yourself some time, especially, you know, if, if, for instance, folks are listening from Santa Barbara, this is really still happening. It's very recent. And Typically, what will happen with trauma is that most immediate concerns are related to just sort of survival and making it through and the immediate emotional aftermath. So, um, you know, the growth part comes later after you've kind of processed it and start moving forward. And after doing the work to change your perspective and build new schemas and find meaning and strength and wisdom. So just remember um, that this is a process and don't, I mean, I think the, the fear I have around doing an episode like this is that it can add a burden mm. that you're supposed to react in a certain way or in a certain time frame. Um, you know, I think that instead just to recognize that there is no, there is no time frame and that this is really a process. Thank you for that. It's important. The second tip that is, I think, important is connection and connect with your community, support others and seek support and know that you're not alone and that your reactions and responses and internal experiences other people are having too. So by sharing them, you're actually helping others. When I, you know, when I hear someone else's story and I can, and I can uh, relate to it, it actually gives me a sense of relief. So share your story and be and listen to other people's stories. It's an important part of post-traumatic growth and can also increase your appreciation for the people that you love. Yeah, yeah, 
Absolutely. Okay, tip three. So sometimes it's it can be really helpful to actually reach out to a professional if you need to. Um, first of all, sometimes there really is a high level of emotional distress that's so high that it makes it really hard to move into that growth part. Um, and so if you're finding that you're having really serious symptoms like PTSD symptoms or really serious depression, um, there are some really effective targeted treatments. Um, a few of the evidence-based ones for for PTSD include prolonged exposure therapy, cognitive processing therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, etc. Um, so, you know, just if, if the symptoms or the emotional distress are so high that, that you, you could use some support to get some relief. But then also a therapist can really go beyond symptom reduction to help with this values and values exploration and, and finding meaning, exploring the meaning that, meaning that you attach to a traumatic event. Um, and in his book, Stephen Joseph says, I really like this. He says that you should think of a therapist as um, someone who's going to guide you through this journey of searching through meaning. But ultimately, you, the client, are the one responsible for choosing the route that you take. Um, so you really want to try to find a therapist that you feel would make a good guide or companion on your personal journey. Um, but, they, but really, you're going to be the one who finds your own meaning. Nice. Yeah. The fourth uh, tip is to reconsider stress. So as I talked about um, with Kelly McGonigal's work, that instead of trying to avoid stress or worrying, <laughs> getting worried about stress, which makes you feel more stressed, uh, and is really recognizing that, that adversity in life is inevitable and can be a source of growth. And actually, uh, you can, you know, your body has resources to respond and, and using your your inner resources to respond effectively. Right. Yeah. Okay. The fifth tip, this is um, a, an acronym. I'm going to go through kind of quickly, but it comes from the book, What Doesn't Kill Us? The New Psychology of Post-Traumatic Growth. Um, I've mentioned a couple times today by Stephen Joseph. Um, and he has these six signposts that can help foster post-traumatic growth. Um, and it, it falls under the acronym THRIVE. So here they are. The T is for T for, from Thrive is for take stock. So he actually has a whole host of things that fall under this category, starting with taking care of your physical needs, you know, just sort of basic self-care, making sure you're safe and, you know, feeding yourself, sleeping, etc. Um, you know, maintaining routines, breathe, <laughs> stop and take a breath when you need to, um, and practice self-compassion, um, observing your emotions, etc. And, I think this is important. Avoid avoidance. So if you find that you're getting into some some things that aren't very workable to avoid, um, things maybe like drinking or drug use or avoiding going, you know, out of the house or something like that, you really need to take stock of all of that and and try to, you know, take care of yourself. Okay, so there's a lot under that. Take stock. Then H is for harvesting hope. I think sometimes when people have had a traumatic a trauma, they can feel a sense of hopelessness about the future. Um, it's just really important to try to, to, to find some hope, even like small bits of hope about the future. Um, recognize that PTSD and chronic distress are not inevitable. And even if you do experience seeing that, it typically doesn't last forever. And growth is possible. Um, and sometimes people can find it helpful actually to read other stories of resilience and growth, like to to read from people who have been through difficulty, um, like Viktor Frankl, who's been through, um, who found meaning in a concentration camp, those types of stories. 
can be helpful. Okay, then R is reauthor your story. This is what Diana, you were talking about before, which is to, um, you know, to recreate the story of who you are, to use metaphor and writing and storytelling to try to, to reauthor your story. I stands for identify change. So change can start happening in really small ways in the aftermath of trauma. And what you want to do is basically start paying attention to it. Notice areas of your life where you're seeing some change. So that's I. And then V is value change. So basically, when you start to notice these little changes, you want to nurture them and nurture these changes that you've identified in yourself. And then E is for express change in action. So basically, finding that bigger sense of growth through new behaviors. So kind of taking those changes and taking the growth that you're doing and expressing it in your life. So that was really quick. Um, But you can read more in his book. But again, the acronym for thrive, take stock, harvest hope, reauthor your story, identify change, value change and express change in action. Great. And we can put those up on our website, too, if you want to write oh, that. Oh, good idea. Yeah, <laughs> good idea. The next tip is to use expressive writing or journaling to explore your emotions, meaning, and values. I think this can be really powerful and help you in identifying change, but also be a way to tell your story and reframe the narrative of what's happened. And there's been a tremendous amount of research on expressive writing as uh, and being able to find in particular the practice of finding meaning out of trauma by writing about that, that it actually has very significant benefits in terms of uh, reducing symptoms of PTSD. So that uh, is one of actually the primary interventions by Penna Baker and others um, for for PTSD symptoms is doing some expressive writing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, the next tip is to open up to new possibilities in yourself and in your life. Um, and I just, just, encourage you to keep in mind that that metaphor of the shattered vase that you're using the shattered pieces to pick up and build something new and beautiful in your life and to open up to the possibility yes and then finally most importantly is explore your own values find your own meaning Um, having a sense of purpose and using and, and creating a practice out of that you can use the choice points uh, approach that we've talked about before. I can't remember what episode we talked about that on, but you always have an opportunity to make a choice towards the direction of your values. And you can also start to be um, someone that spots out how you're doing values-based action. So those are our eight tips and uh, we just really, um, our hearts go again out to the community of Santa Barbara, but also out to the many, you know, all of us that have suffered at some point in our life through adversity, no one is immune to it. Things will go terribly, horribly wrong. I guarantee it at some point. Uh, so there's no yeah. one immune. And I think as just sort of uh, the humanity and as a, as a community of humans, uh, we can support each other in taking some steps towards um, weathering trauma and growing from it. Yes, that's so right. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening. And thank you, Diana, for preparing this material and just thinking of you out there in your community and and wishing everyone the best as they move forward. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes. 
You can also find us at www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's offtheclockpsych.com. Music by John Goo and Susie Stevens.